Perhaps a name, if you've been in business, that you're familiar with is um, Stephen Covey. He's probably one of the best-known um, uh, authorities in our world, or was before he passed away, on leadership. He wrote one of the best-selling books um, in that genre of any time called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he's considered by some magazines as one of the most influential Americans. So that's pretty high praise. But he's probably best known for an illustration and a statement. Here's the illustration. He said, what if you had a jar and you want to put into that jar a group of rocks and pebbles and sand? What would you do? Well, somebody might pour in the sand and then put in the pebbles, but if you did, the rocks won't fit. The only way to get the rocks and the pebbles and the sand to fill to fit into that jar is you have to put the rocks in first. So you put the big rocks in first, then the pebbles, which fill in some of the gaps, and then the sand, which fills in the rest of the gaps, and it all fits. But if you put the little stuff in first, it won't work. So the moral of the story is, of course, put the big rocks in first, or deal with the most important things first, and the little things will take care of themselves. That's his illustration. Simple, but it works. And here is his most famous statement. Sounds crazy, but this is what he said. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's not that smart, is it? It is, because we don't do it. The main thing of life is to keep the main thing the main thing which is far from what we do. This morning, we're going to start uh, a series in the book of Romans, which is the main book of the Bible. It's written, it identifies what are the main truths of Christianity. It was written to the people who lived in the main city of the world at that particular time. It is going to outline the main facets of how a Christian views our world. And this main book of the entire Bible is the one that has started all of, to our knowledge, the main revivals in human history. That's a lot of praise for one book of the Bible. Samuel Coleridge, the famous poet, said this, the book of Romans is the most profound piece of writing in existence. So here, one of the best-known poets in the history of the world said, the greatest thing that has ever been written in human history, that's high praise, because there are millions and millions and millions of books that have been written. The most important one that has ever been written is the book of Romans. The best, one of the best-known theologians in the history of the world was a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo. That's North Africa. And it was through his study, he picked up a book, uh, the book of Romans, the scroll, because they didn't even have books back then. He picked up the scroll of Romans because he was an extremely highly educated man. And he read two verses, and he became convinced of the truth of the gospel, and it changed his life. 
And some have said he is the best known theologian in the history of the world. Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the one who began what's called the Protestant Reformation. He was a Roman Catholic monk who by all means of monkery tried to follow God, but he found himself failing over and over again. He would sometimes spend five hours a day confessing his sins, and he had no sense that he had gotten to the end of them. He could find no peace. But he opened a passage, believe it or not, Romans 1.17, the very verse that we started with today. And his entire life was changed. And with the change of his life, the life of this entire planet was changed because he's the one who began what's known as the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin, who lived about the same time as Martin Luther, he said this, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road opening for him to understand the whole scriptures. Just down the street, not far from here, we have Methodist churches. Methodist churches were started by John Wesley in the 1700s. John Wesley went to Oxford University. He was a brilliant man. He came to the United States among the Native American people to share the gospel with them. But guess what? John Wesley wasn't a Christian. He came as a missionary and he wasn't a Christian. He had never Embrace the gospel. He thought that the gospel was live a good life and God will accept you. It wasn't until he went back to England after he had been a missionary in America. He went back to England and he was in a church where they were reading part of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And as he heard those words, he said, and these are his words, I found that my heart was strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And a famous commentator on the Bible said this, every revival of Christianity throughout history has begun by a study of the book of Romans. Wow, that's high praise. But I don't think I need to let you know, because we live in America, that we Christians have not been doing a very good job lately in putting the big rocks in first or keeping the main thing the main thing. As a matter of fact, we're doing a terrible job. You cannot find one statistic in America today that doesn't tell us that the evangelical church is in a world of trouble. We're in big trouble. We have let psychology and sociology and business and politics trump the truth of God's word. Here are the numbers. 30% of evangelicals, that's one out of every three, that's a good portion of these people right here. 30% of evangelicals believe, quote, that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That is not Christianity, brothers and sisters. That's something else. I don't know what it is. Well, I know what it is. It's called heresy. 40% of evangelicals. All of you here, if we are a typical congregation in America today, all of you on this side, all of you, 
You believe, quote, that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Almost every other evangelical believes that, and that is patently false. It is heresy. 50% of believers, of evangelicals, 50, the whole, this whole group, if we were a typical congregation, half of this whole congregation today believes that Jesus, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, I know that's very popular in our culture. It's called pluralism. That is contrary to not only Christianity, but also Islam and Judaism, ironically. And I can't believe this one, but 65% of evangelicals, almost 70% of every one of us, if we are a typical congregation, which I hope you are not, 65% of us, 65% of us believe that Jesus is the first and the greatest being that God created. That is one of the, the first things that the Christian community in the world's history after the time of Jesus rejected as false. And 65% of evangelicals in America, and I don't mean all Christians, evangelicals are people who believe in the Bible. These are people who believe in the Bible that don't have any clue at all what the Bible teaches. Zero. And yet we call ourselves Christians. We Christians have lost or we've abandoned, or we've never had in the first place a Christian worldview. You see, everybody that exists has a worldview. We look at life through a series of glasses, but we don't even know that we have them on. A Chinese proverb says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. Because a fish is so surrounded by water all the time, that's all they know. But we as Christians are so immersed in our culture that we don't even realize that we have adopted a worldview that does not come from the Bible. It is a worldview of our culture. What is a worldview? In fact, those who do statistics say that only one out of ten Christians has a Christian worldview. So what do we have? Our way of looking at our world is largely derived from the water in which we live, like a fish. We derive our worldview from our culture, not from the Word of God, but the beauty is the Word of God is here to help us to understand how to view our lives and the world from the perspective of God. What is a worldview about? A question every human being, if you're alive, you should ask is, where did I come from? Or who am I as a, as, as a human being? Or there's not anyone that I don't know of. Well, maybe a few, but something's gone wrong with the world. What is it? This is not what we dream of, this world. Something's desperately wrong. What is it? What's gone wrong? And how do you fix it? What, what is the central focus of, of a life? Or what's the central focus of my life? How, how do I know what is true? 
Our culture screams at us every day in every way. Follow your heart. The Bible says that will certainly destroy you. A worldview asks, how do we know what is right and wrong? Where do we get that from? Or what is the purpose of my life? Again, our culture screams at us, don't worry, be happy. That's the goal of, that's the purpose of a life, is so you don't worry and be happy. But that is not what God says. We're worth more than that. We're worth infinitely more than that. What is my destiny? What happens after I die? Those are questions that people have to ask if you're alive and you're thinking. And so that's what a worldview is all about. And so our aim over the next number of of weeks and months, Lord willing, is to go through this book of the Bible that better than anything that's ever been written will help us to understand how to view life from the perspective of God. The book of Romans is written by Paul. Paul was uh, obviously a Jewish man. He was a rabbi at one time. He was raised in the Harvard University of his day. He was brilliant. He was uh, one who was zealous. He was highly, highly, highly disciplined. But God, kicking and screaming, converted him. And God then gave this Jew a strange assignment to bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are dogs, according to Jews at the time. They were outside. Chose this brilliant Harvard-educated Jewish rabbi who killed people for Judaism. It would be the equivalent of choosing a Osama bin Laden to be a great Christian event, to be Billy Graham. It's that radical. That's who he chose. Now, the Apostle Paul, as you know, he went out on these long trips called missionary journeys. And the book we're about to uh, look at, Romans, he wrote this after he had finished what's called his third missionary journey. He had first traveled throughout what present-day Turkey. And then he went into present-day Greece. But his real goal was to get to the capital of the empire, Rome. And so he writes this letter to the people in Rome. He's never been there before. He did not start this church. He doesn't know these people. Some of them have he's visited with, but he's never been to this church. He writes them a letter, and he said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem because as he had been going to planting all these churches, he's been collecting money. And he had a big offering because the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted. And he collected this offering so he could bring it to these poor people in Jerusalem and say, this is what the Gentiles think of you. They love you. They want to care for you. And then he said, once I get to to Jerusalem, I'm coming to Rome because I want to bring the gospel to you. He didn't know what was going to happen. Because once he got to Rome, a riot broke out. They put him in prison. 
And for two years, he ended up in prison in a place called Caesarea. And then he did get a trip to Rome. All expenses paid by Emperor Nero as a prisoner. And they got him from, to Rome and they put him in prison. That's what they did. But he wrote this letter from Greece, present-day Corinth, close to Athens. And he wrote it to these people who lived in Rome, the center of the empire. And in this book, he begins with the centerpiece of it all, the main thing, which is the gospel. So if you have a Bible, oh, a cell phone, an iPad, whatever it may be, turn with me to this passage, Romans chapter 1. Now the apostle Paul is going to begin with, by introducing himself. That's how letters began back then. We always put our, uh, who we are at the end of the letter. And if you're like me, almost any card or letter I get, the first thing I do is I go to the end. That's kind of dumb. Why don't we put it at the front? Say, hey, this is Tom speaking, dear so-and-so. We should do that. But that they were smarter than we were back then. So they put, this is Paul. So he's going to introduce himself in an incredible way. And then he's going to turn from introducing himself and what he's all about to talking about these people in Rome and how much he wants to visit them. And then he's going to bring us to the verse that we, we, we all stated together, verses at the end of this section where he talks about the gospel and how important it is. So this is how he begins. He's going to begin with the centerpiece of the gospel The centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus. Here's what he says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, And through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins. He says, my name is Paul. I am, and the word he uses is slave. I am a slave. You could call it a bond slave, which means a slave by choice. I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. As a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a slave who is chosen to be a slave, God called me to be an apostle. An apostle was someone who, in in the New Testament time, had to have two qualifications. They had to have known the physical person of Jesus, and they had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's a problem for Paul. Because Paul did not know Jesus personally while Jesus was here on earth. And Paul was not a a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. So he doesn't qualify. 
Paul goes into great detail in his letter saying, yes, I do. Because after Jesus brought me to himself in Damascus, I went to the desert of Arabia and there I've been personally taught by the resurrected Jesus. That's who taught me this stuff. I got it from Jesus. I am an apostle. And an apostle was one specifically called who knew Jesus to represent Jesus to other people. And it is the apostles who were stamped by God with the ability to write the New Testament for us. Spokesmen for God. That's who we were. He said, so my calling is, I'm an apostle. And my message, my message is the gospel. And gospel is simply the word that means good news. I am a bearer of good news. But this good news is actually old news. This is not something new. It is in complete continuity with what God has told his holy people from the time of Abraham 2,000 years before my time. This good news is old news. And the centerpiece of this good news is this person named Jesus, who as to his human nature was a son of David, as to his divine nature was the son of God. He's human and he's divine. And why do I do what I do? Because God's grace, his unmerited, unconditional love was poured out on me. And so my, the goal of my life now is to, to glorify, to make Jesus' repu, repu, rep, reputation high everywhere I go. And I anticipate that as I faithfully do this, God is going to bring a harvest of souls, including new people who are going to be filled with God's unmerited favor and his shalom, his peace. That's why I'm in business. The main thing is the gospel. And the main thing of the main thing is Jesus Christ. And the main thing of the main thing of the main thing is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart and core of who we are. Jesus was talking with a group of Jewish leaders, and they didn't like him at all. And so they, they, they said to him, um, who gave you this authority? And this is what Jesus said. You, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have new life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Whoa. Jesus said, I am the focus of everything that you've been studying your whole life as Jewish rabbis. I am the focus. There are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed directly to Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, and time after time in the Old Testament, that, that the, the, the angel of the Lord appeared, which is probably a pre-incarnate visitation to this earth by Jesus himself. They're called Christophanies. God appeared. 
There are Jesus, throughout the whole Old Testament, there are people who, who prefigure Jesus. They're, they're called types. In fact, just before I came, um, I think it was Harold spoke about Joseph. Joseph is one of those types. He, at Joseph's life, was a type of, of Jesus. So was Daniel's and many others. The whole Old Testament focused on Jesus. They didn't know the name of the person, but they focused on this person who would come, who would become the suffering servant, who would die, who would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who would rise from the dead? And then the Gospels tell us the name of that person. The name of that person, obviously, is Jesus. In the first century, this is the time that the Bible was written, the word gospel was a political term. When you were going to announce the birth of a new administration or a new king, a, a herald would, would pronounce, would go from town to town and would shout out as loud as possible, the king has been born! Or a new king has risen to the throne. And so, when the Christians called their message the gospel, it was very dangerous to the Roman emperors because the Christians were declaring, no, Caesar is not my king. Jesus is my king. That's a dangerous message. And so for 300 years, the Roman emperors persecuted the Christians and killed them because they declared that Jesus is our king. Oh, yes, we're going to see in Romans that we submit to the political leaders, but they are not our sovereign. I hope we remember that as Christians in America. Our king is Jesus and only Jesus. Can you honestly say that he's your king? Can you say that the Bible is the main thing of your life? If you're going to have a, you're going to be a Christian who follows, who lives your life as a Christian, the main thing is the gospel. The main thing of the main thing is Jesus. And the main thing of the main thing about Jesus is his death and his resurrection. That's why we have crosses, and that's why we have it is finished and he is risen, because that's the main thing. By the way, as we talked about last week, that main thing at the heart and core of Christianity is historically reliable. It has it is, is weathered the test of time now for 2,000 years the tune of 2.1 billion people on this earth right now who in name or otherwise say, I am a follower of Jesus. That's quite a number. Well, after Paul has introduced himself, he's now going to turn from focusing on the person of Jesus to focusing on the people of Jesus. He's going to now express his heart for the people who he's writing for. Let me go back to verses 6 and 7. And you, he's talking about the Roman believers, 
you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're, I like that, the, the words called to be his holy people, but actually the word is called to be saints. I don't think I've done this before, but maybe you, when you meet someone here and come to church, say, hey, saint, welcome, saint. You go, oh, I'm not much of a saint. But you are. Paul never met these people. But he says, if you only knew, if you only knew who you are, you are loved by God. You're people who are called to belong to Jesus. You are saints. That's who God sees you to be. Say, Whoa. We're the recipients of God's grace. We're loved by him without condition. Our sins are buried. They've been taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. That's what he's done for us. Well, he goes on. This is, he goes, verse 9, or verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being repeated all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Paul was thankful for them. Paul commended them for his, their faith. Paul prayed for them. Paul couldn't wait to meet them. Well, that's kind of nice. Well, um, you probably know that it is not uncommon in our world for people in a particular profession to grow over time, to despise the very people their profession is designed to serve. For example, you can become a physician who over time despises people with aches and pains. Or you can be a government worker who acts as if it is a major inconvenience to serve the public. A little more laughter because we get that one all the time. Or you can be a social worker who despises social misfits. Or a, a police officer who can't stand lawbreakers. How about a counselor who deplores people with problems? Or a pastor who looks down on people who sin? Or a teacher who despises the unlearned or those who are slow to learn? You are going to enter, you've entered now a process of seeking a new pastor for this church. Put very, very, very high on your list a person who loves us. If you think it's a given, you don't know what you're talking about. There are many other motives for a person to be a pastor. It's a career choice. It's a job. It's a stepping stone. It's an opportunity to exercise power or a chance to run away from your past. Those are not good motives. Did you see Paul's motive? Oh, I, I pray for you. I love you. I can't wait to see you. I want to meet you. That's the right motive. Well, why does he want to see them? He's going to tell us why. 
Look at verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul said, I, I want to come to you because the goal of my life is I want to strengthen you as a believer. And not only that, I want you to strengthen me as a believer. And I want to sow seeds of the gospel among you so that we can together see God's word blossom among the Gentiles. Well, finally, we come to the main book about the main person, that's Jesus, who, of course, the main events of his life are his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, what many would say would be some of the main verses in the entire Bible. This is the theme of the gospel. Here it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, the Christian church was small. It was composed largely of lower-class people, including many slaves. Rome was a proud city. It was the, the Christians of the early church were not among the elite of that society. They were common people. It would be easy for the common people in this magnificent city, the largest city in the world, the only city in the world for over a thousand years now that would be over a million people. It would be very easy for this little band of people to be ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. You know why I'm not ashamed? Because this gospel unleashes power that our world has never seen before. It unleashes the power to change the eternal destiny of human beings. It is a power that is able to cut through all the barriers of society, whether they be race or socioeconomically or language. It cuts through all of them. It provides an outrageous offer. God's righteousness for your unrighteousness. That's amazing. And how do you access it? Work hard. Put your, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Go to church, pay your money. No! By faith from first to last. Wow. Well, the main thing is the gospel. Told to us in the, this main book of the Bible, Romans, about the main person in all of human history, Jesus. The main events of his life are his death and resurrection. But the main thing of the main thing of the main thing of the main thing of the main thing is the righteousness of God. You see, the very heart and core of the Christian message is 
the righteousness of God. By this gospel, by what God is doing with the gospel, he is going to demonstrate throughout all eternity that this righteous God is able to bring into his eternal family for eternity unrighteous people like you and me. Now, how in the world is he going to pull that off? Huh? that's coming next. Well, the centerpiece of the Christian worldview is the gospel. And the centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus. And the centerpiece of the life of Jesus is his death and his resurrection. The centerpiece of it all is the righteousness of God. There's a man who wrote the book called The Robe. His name was Lloyd C. Douglas. And when he was in university, he lived in a boarding house. And downstairs on the first floor was an elderly, retired music teacher who was unable to leave the apartment. Douglas said that every morning they had a ritual they would go through together. Douglas would come down the stairs. He would open the old man's door and he would ask, well, what's the good news today? The old man would pick up a tuning fork and he would tap it on the side of his wheelchair and he would say, That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. And it will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat, he said. And the piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. Jesus is our middle C. He's the centerpiece of our worldview. He's the main thing. And our task is to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help even to keep the main thing the main thing because we don't do that very well either. But oh, we thank you for Jesus that you, would, that you would actually allow him to come to this earth is stunning. Why would you bother with us? And then for him to be so mistreated by us, to die for us and to rise from the dead. Amazing. So that you could show how righteous you are for all eternity. Oh, help us to keep it the main thing. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.